0: Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Paul Levingood. I'm president of the VHS. I want to welcome you all today to another banner lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. And as always, I'd like to thank the Times Dispatch whose support helps make these lectures possible. 150 years ago, tomorrow night, the 16th of October, this man on the screen, John Brown, and his little band of desperate men descended on Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Their attempt to spark a slave uprising failed utterly, but the violence they provoked and the executions it prompted shocked the nation. They reinforced white Southern fears about slave insurrection, emboldened secessionists, and made Brown a martyr in the eyes of many Northerners. Ever since, John Brown has been a symbol of contrast and controversy. He demanded that his contemporaries take a moral stance on slavery. And to this day, a mention of the attack spurs debate about issues of justice, terrorism, liberation, and vigilanteism. You'll learn more about these issues in the exhibition that just opened upstairs in our galleries. The story of Brown's early life, his fervent religious beliefs, his turn to violence as an abolitionist in Kansas and his Virginia Raid and its Aftermath. One of the co-curators of that exhibition is our own Bill Rasmussen, who's the Laura Robbins curator here at the VHS. He's co-author of the companion books to, this, to book to this exhibition, which has just arrived hot off the presses, and which we just gave away a copy of. Of course, Bill will be signing them in the museum shop after the lecture. Dr. Rasmussen graduated from Washington and Lee and earned his doctorate at the University of Delaware. He's no stranger to most of you, I think. He has had a part in many of the exhibitions here at the VHS over the years, and he's written a number of books connected to them. Among those with a biographical emphasis, like the John Brown book, are his books on Lee and Grant, George Washington, and Pocahontas. Bill has given a number of banner lectures on these topics as well, plus numerous gallery walks. So please join me in welcoming Bill Rasmussen, who will tell us about The Portent. John Brown in American Memory.
1: Um, thank you, Paul. As Paul just said, it was exactly 150 years ago that, uh, to, this, to this day that, that this man that you're looking at, John Brown, and 21 of his followers gained armed possession of the federal arsenal at Harpers Ferry, which was then Virginia. Their intent was to confiscate rifles stored there, and with those rifles initiate a massive slave insurrection that would spread throughout the South and eventually free all of the four million slaves in in America. The seizure of a federal building would also sound a protest against the federal government for its tolerance of slavery. Americans at the time reacted to the raid as they still do today with extreme uh, emotion and with diametrically opposed viewpoints. I'll give you six quotes now, three on one side and three on the other. Nathaniel Hawthorne. John Brown was a blood-stained fanatic. Nobody was ever more justly hanged. His raid was a preposterous miscalculation of possibilities. Abraham Lincoln, John Brown's effort was peculiar. An enthusiast broods about the oppression of a people till he fancies himself commissioned by heaven to liberate them. He ventures the attempt which ends in little else than his own execution. Ulysses Grant, it was certainly the act of an insane man to attempt the invasion of the South and the overthrow of slavery with less than 20 men. In contrast, Henry David Thoreau, John Brown was like the best of those who stood at Bunker Hill, only he was firmer and higher principled. Ralph Waldo Emerson, John Brown's martyrdom will make the gallows as glorious as the cross. Victor Hugo, when we think of what Brown, this liberator, this fighter for Christ, attempted, And when we reflect that he is to be slaughtered by the American Republic, we recoil with horror. In 1941, a 24-year-old black artist who was remarkably talented named Jacob Lawrence painted 22 scenes that are in our show that tell the story of John Brown. He titled this scene, John Brown, a man who had a fanatical belief that he was chosen by God to overthrow black slavery in America. He titled, This One for 40 Years, John Brown Reflected on the Hopeless and Miserable Condition of the Slaves. So Lawrence tells us correctly that the raid into Virginia was conducted by a fanatic. Monomaniac was the term used then, a type of person like Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, who was obsessive. And Jacob Lawrence tells us that the raid was plotted by Brown for decades. In the late 1850s, John Brown found a place where he could make a strike against slavery, Kansas. The territory of Kansas had become a skirmish ground where pro-slavery and free state settlers battled to determine whether it would achieve statehood as one that allowed slavery or one that prohibited slavery. Brown traveled to Kansas in 1855 with the idea that the violence there could be escalated into so great a national disturbance that slavery would have to be abolished. In 1856, a group led by John Brown murdered in cold blood five pro slavery settlers at a place called Pottawatomie. And then they butchered the corpses with, with swords. Uh, this was nothing other than a terrorist act. Back in the East, John Brown fi- found financing, and his principal supporters kept their anonymity, and so they came to be known as the Secret Six. Three were businessmen, two were ministers, five lived in or near Boston. Just as important, at least with respect to John Brown's reputation, were the poets Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson because their opinions were respected throughout the North. This is the title page from the first biography of John Brown published in 1860 by a man named James Redpath, and it credits the prominent abolitionist Wendell Phillips along with Thoreau and Emerson. Jacob Lawrence tells us here to the the people he found worthy of trust John Brown communicated his plan to invade Virginia. One was the black leader Frederick Douglass, who admired Brown but declined to become associated with a plan that was doomed to failure. Here's what happened at Harper's Ferry. This is a wood engraving from Harper's Weekly, published three weeks after the raid. The raid was one of the first events covered by the new Associated Press. Harper's and Frank Leslie's Illustrated Magazine sent reporters and artists to the scene. The many wood engravings like like this one that I'm going to show you are from those newspapers. It was Sunday evening, October 16, 1859, and with a company of 21 men, five of whom were black, John Brown marched on Harper's Ferry. As Jacob Lawrence shows us, the federal arsenal was easily taken by surprise in the middle of the night. By morning, residents of the town and neighboring county responded to what they believed to be an attack by robbers. The townspeople and 12 neighboring militia units attacked the insurgents aggressively, killing 10 of them, and forcing Brown and the last four of his men still standing to retreat into the fire engine house on the arsenal grounds. Five of his men escaped. President James Buchanan sent to the scene a contingent of U.S. Marines under the command of Robert E. Lee. They arrived Monday evening. At dawn on Tuesday, Lee sent Lieutenant Jeb Stewart forward under a flag of truce to attempt to negotiate a surrender. Stewart had served in Kansas. He recognized John Brown. To that point, his identity had been unknown. The surrender effort failed. Lee ordered the Marines to storm the engine house. One of the Marines was killed. Two insurgents were killed. The episode lasted only a few minutes. Jeb Stewart took as a souvenir John Brown's Bowie Knife, which is in the Virginia Historical Society collection. In the end, four citizens had been shot and killed by the insurgents, along with the one Marine. Several other citizens were severely wounded. Twelve of John Brown's 21 men were dead. Four more, plus Brown himself, would later be hanged. So a total of 22 people died at Harper's Ferry. Immediately, John Brown was questioned by a group of indignant dignitaries led by Virginia's Governor Henry Wise. Wise is the fourth figure from the left. The third figure from the left is Robert E. Lee in civilian clothes. To their surprise, they were impressed by Brown's intelligence. They were astounded by his admission that his plan was to start a slave revolt and carry it throughout the whole South. And by his explanation that his Christian faith was what had motivated him to action. Southerners initially dismissed Brown as a madman. But then his papers and 200 rifles and 200 pistols and 950 pikes, spears, were discovered in the buildings from which he had staged the raid, including this farmhouse. The papers included letters from the Secret Six. Those letters and the quantity of weapons suggested that northerners did in fact want to unleash a bloody slave insurrection. Some white southerners attempted to laugh off the matter. Here a slave refuses to participate because he has not finished seating yet. They poked fun at the absurdity of, of Brown's plan that brought almost no response from the slaves. However, in truth, most white Southerners were terrified by the fear of slave insurrection that Brown had brought to the surface. Governor Henry Wise was determined that Virginia do the prosecuting of Brown, not the federal government, although Brown had attacked a federal building. Wise saw the raid as a springboard to win the presidential nomination of the Democratic Party in 1860 as a southern rights candidate. So he promoted a fantasy. He, he warned that an even greater conspiracy was being plotted by northern extremists. That stance attracted criticism even from within Virginia. Former President John Tyler urged Wise to commute Brown's sentence to life in prison so that, quote, the enemy would be disarmed, unquote. James Seddon who was a congressman and later became Confederate Secretary of War, said that Wise put the entirely wrong spin on the, on the raid. Quote, the ruffians should have been tried and executed in the simplest manner. There should not have been the chance offered of elevating them to political offenders or making them representatives and champions of northern sentiment. Wise gave John Brown a stage. He made him representative of all the no- Of all the North, when in fact he was one of a kind. By putting his personal interests first, Henry Rice contributed significantly, almost as much as did his antagonist, to bringing about the Civil War. John Brown was wounded when he was captured, and he lay on a cot, as shown here, during most of the trial. But he rose to his feet when offered the chance to speak. His address to the court was masterful. Ralph Waldo Emerson later ranked it with Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address as the two greatest speeches in all of American history. Here's a part of it John Brown said, This court acknowledges, I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed, which I suppose to be the Bible, or at least the New Testament. It teaches me that all things whatsoever I would that men should do to me, I should do even so to them. It teaches me further to remember them that are in bonds. I endeavored to act up to that instruction. I believe that to have interfered as I have done in behalf of the despised poor, I did no wrong but right. He also stated that his plan was only to free a few slaves, not to shed blood. Quote, I never had any design against the life of any person, nor any disposition to commit treason or excite slaves to rebel or make any general insurrection. End quote. That claim was entirely different from what he had told the governor when he was captured. He had said then that his plan was to initiate a widespread slave revolt. A few days after the speech, Brown flip flopped again. He returned to his original story. He did, in fact, hope for a slave insurrection. The important point here is that the courtroom speech, which denies the widespread slave revolt, was what was read throughout the North in newspapers and in this pamphlets, which we have upstairs in the show. And that innocent speech, and how can you not like that speech, that caused many in the North to reassess Brown and side with him. Southerners instead paid attention only to Brown's stash of rifles and pistols and pikes and letters from northern supporters, hard evidence that suggested that uh, they were correct to fear an insurrection. In the following weeks from his jail in nearby Charleston, John Brown wrote lucid, persuasive letters that justified the anti-slavery movement. Like his speech, they carefully omitted any mention of the widespread human slaughter that would have accompanied a slave revolt. North and south, John Brown could no longer be dismissed as a madman who had launched a hopeless attack as part of an impossible crusade. Among the many visitors to Brown in jail was his wife, Mary. She arrived a day before the hanging. The couple was allowed four hours together. Husband and wife were said to embrace tightly for minutes without speaking, Brown fumed when she was not allowed to stay the night. Mary would not have his body burned as he wished. She would take it home for burial. She carried home his papers and the letters he had received in jail. To the consternation of many in the north and abroad, the state of Virginia hanged John Brown on December 2, 1859. Not a single slave had been freed, but Americans were forced by the raid and the execution to reconsider the horrific institution of slavery. One now had to take a stand on the issue one way or the other. Southerners and Northerners who had previously dismissed the idea of secession and possible armed conflict moved rapidly towards the more militant positions that would bring war 16 months later. And so it can be argued that if John Brown had not invaded Virginia, the war might never have happened. As he left the jail, Brown handed a note to one of his guards. It was brief and prophetic. I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. Herman Melville picked up on that theme in his poem, The Portent, from which we took part of the title of our exhibition. A portent is a harbinger. John Brown was a harbinger of something horrible of war. Herman Melville described John Brown hanging from the beam, what David Hunter Struther drew here, but which Harper's weekly had the discretion not to publish. Melville says his death ushered in a new historical moment when the stabs shall heal no more. The political and emotional wounds forced open by John Brown would remain untended until they were supplanted by the actual bloodletting that began at Fort Sumter. The hope of many Americans was that the more moderate voices on both sides would be heard. Two such voices were those of William Green of Richmond, you see here. Green later served as vice president of the Virginia Historical Society from 1870 to 1880. And John Andrew of Boston, Andrew was a Republican, soon to be elected governor of Massachusetts. Letters by them are in the society's collection and in the show. Green's writing is hard to to read, but it is readable. Example of John Andrew's uh, letters. They had been in touch before the hanging. In a failed attempt to free Brown, Andrew had hired Green. as as reportedly the best lawyer in Virginia, to petition the Supreme Court of Appeals of Virginia for a writ of error, and they continue their correspondence after the hanging. Andrew, the Bostonian, could never effectively defend Brown's criminal actions. Green, the Richmonder, could never justify the institution of slavery. Andrews suggested that John Brown should be treated with mercy because his motive was good. He, fi- he followed a higher law. Green responded, quote, If this doctrine be not altogether unsound, it is a specimen of transcendentalism wholly beyond and above my, my comprehension. I should let you look at Green while I'm quoting him. He goes on, what if if a set of enthusiasts anywhere, for example, in Massachusetts, should take it into their heads that the God they believe in requires them to kill every Virginia slaveholder they can, together with his wife and children and friends, though non-slaveholders? Green was not realistic in debating slavery. He said that slavery was, quote, a subject so full of difficulty that it should be with modesty handled by those who have none but a theoretical knowledge Respecting it. Andrew, in response, believed that, in quote, the substantial equality of men, and as to their fundamental rights, I include colored men in the citizenry of humanity, end quote. Let me try now to break down further the reaction in 1859 to John Brown's raid and execution by race and by region. African Americans, North and South, free and slave, of course appreciated John Brown, since his goal was to end slavery. Some blacks from the start, and to their credit, rejected Brown's use of violence. Most have consistently praised Brown to this this day. In contrast, most White Southerners denounced Brown as a lunatic and criminal, and during the past 150 years, that reputation has changed remarkably little with that segment of the population. Some Southerners who denounced Brown were extremists, like this man, the Virginian Edmund Edmund Ruffin. These were the ones who brought on the Civil War. They concluded that abolitionists would do anything in support of their cause. John Brown was the proof. Edmund Ruffin wanted secession. He welcomed the raid. He managed to sneak into a militia unit at Harper's Ferry to witness the hanging, which he hoped would advance southern unity. He encouraged the linking of, of Brown to the Republican Party, which he hoped would win the presidency in 1860 and thereby inevitably dissolve the union. Other southern whites, however, were even more moderate than William Green, These were the people who, 16 months later, remained Unionist and rejected the idea of secession and rejected the Confederacy. Among the very moderate white Virginians was this man, John Minor Botts, former U.S. congressman. He rejected the idea that the whole North and the Republican Party were supporters of John Brown's raid. Quote, that any respectable portion of my fellow countrymen had any knowledge of or had participated directly or indirectly in this hell-born scheme of violence, I have not, I cannot, and I will not believe. And yet the effort has been made, and my blood runs cold, and I shudder when I say successfully made to a great extent to create the belief that a great and powerful party, the Republicans, knew and approved of and participated indirectly in the crime, crimes and outrages perpetuated. And that they sympathize with the convicted felons. Great God! What an idea to have taken possession of the minds of men. End quote. Does anyone fear that a second invasion on a larger scale might follow such a miserable failure? A bot, bots asked, with no need to answer his own question. Northern reaction to the raid among whites was varied and more complex from the start. It's perhaps surprising for us uh, today to find out that many initially rejected Brown's violence and were disinterested in his goal. However, Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and other important New England thinkers maintained a firm stand in his support. Like John Andrew, they had reached the conclusion that the responsibility to correct racial injustice trumped the use of force to achieve that goal. Thoreau delivered his plea for Captain John Brown two weeks after the raid. He said that, quote, a man has a perfect right to interfere by force with a slaveholder in order to rescue the slave, end quote. He called the raid, quote, the best news that America has ever heard. It has already quickened the feeble pulse of the North, Five days after Brown's courtroom speech, Emerson delivered a lecture on courage. He said that John Brown was brave. He was on the side of right. And then he gave his memorable line that so enraged Southerners, he is the new saint awaiting his martyrdom who will make the gallows glorious like the cross. End quote. The positive image of Brown that was put forward by Emerson and Thoreau would perpetuate his memory and that of his cause for generations of Americans. Other ports praised Brown. Nathaniel Hawthorne, who I cited at the beginning, was actually the exception. The most famous port in America, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, entered in his journal on the day that John Brown was hanged, quote, this will be a great day in our history, the date of a new revolution, quite as much needed as the old one, end quote. William Cullen Bryant was an important figure in American literary circles whose opinion was highly valued. He called the hang, Brown, the hang John Brown one of the, quote, martyrs and heroes of our country. The abolitionist John Greenleaf Whittier was perhaps the most widely read 19th century poet on the subject of John Brown. His poem, Brown of Osawatomie," was published less than three weeks after the execution. He used an image of Brown with slave children that captured the imagination of many Americans. He has John Brown saying in that poem, Let some poor slave mother whom I have striven to free with her children from the gallows' stair put up a prayer for me. This is a drawing by Victor Hugo. The northern writers found a kindred spirit in Europe in Hugo, the great French poet, novelist, dramatist, who, who also opposed the hanging of John Brown. His objection was judged by many to be the verdict of the civilized world. Hugo sketched this depiction of the hanging and he pled passionately that Brown should, should not be executed. Quote, when one thinks of the United States of America, a majestic figure rises before the mine, Washington. It seems as if a, if a, if a part of the light of humanity were being eclipsed. The first fratricide to be outdone there is something more terrible than Cain killing Abel it is Washington killing Spartacus Spartacus of course is a famous Roman slave who led a slave revolt immediately following the hanging meeting halls and churches in the north were filled with sympathizers who proclaimed Brown a martyr it was not the number of these mourners that was significant because there weren't that many of them it was their visibility One discourse presented in Chicago was by a prominent theologian to whom people paid attention, William W. Patton. He said he he could not condone a slave revolt because, quote, "It it would not benefit the slave, it would be slaughtered by thousands, and it would be a hell on earth to the whites, end quote. However, he said no man had ever expressed nobler sentiments than Brown. He was a genuine Christian. Therefore, Patton concluded that Brown, quote, was not severely responsible, end quote, for what he did. The sympathizers, though vocal, paled in number when compared to Brown's northern detractors. Most northerners rejected Brown as a lunatic and a criminal, just as white southerners did. Even abolitionist leaders initially denounced Brown's violence as, as so great an affront to the slaveholders that it would only impede their, their mission. Many others in the North were, con- were content to tolerate slavery, believing it to be a problem for the white Southerners alone to resolve. Leaders of the new Republican Party, which had been founded largely to halt the expansion of slavery into the territories, never advocated abolishing slavery where it already existed. They attempted to distance themselves from John Brown. Many businessmen in the North were linked by trade to the cotton economy of the South, and so they were pro slavery. They rejected John Brown outright. To counter the pro Brown demonstrations, they organized massive rallies that they called union meetings, and that attracted audiences numbering in the thousands. The gathering in Philadelphia, you see the pamphlet for that on the screen, drew more than 6,000 people. Cannons thundered, ships displayed their colors. One speaker, Edward King, dared to state, quote, "We prefer the happiness of our race to that of any other race." End quote. Another speaker, Josiah Randall, ridiculed Brown's sympathizers, quote, "We have more convicts in the Eastern penitentiary than abolitionists end quote. The great Union meeting in New York City was the largest ever held there. Six thousand people filled the Academy of Music. 15,000 more gathered outside, and a document of support was, sound by, was signed by 20,000 citizens, one third of the registered voters. The, the meeting was a blatant celebration of the commercial ties between the city's cotton merchants and the slave economy of the South. Resolutions were passed quote, We regard the recent outrage at Harper's Ferry as a crime, and we approve of the firmness by which the treason has been duly punished. End quote. Another resolution, quote, the Constitution recognizes the institution of slavery, and it is our duty to stand by that Constitution, end quote. Of all the remembrances that followed Brown's death, the farthest reaching was the song John Brown's Body, which proved to be the most popular lyric sung by soldiers of the Union Army. Here it's being sung in the streets of Charleston in 1865. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. It differentiates between the impermanence of the body and his soul goes marching on, the, the eternal life of the soul. The latter must have been reassuring to young men marching toward what could be their death. The lyrics were written just before the war by members of a Massachusetts regiment, one of whom happened to be also named John Brown. He provided the inspiration and then the song has that f- stirring refrain, glory, glory, hallelujah. The refrain was, was kept when the song was reinvented during the early years of the war to become the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Interestingly, it was written by Julia Ward Howe, who was wife of one of the members of the, Se- of the Secret Six, wife of Samuel Gridley Howe. A great deal has been said about John Brown during the past 150 years, I have, I have time to mention only a, a few highlights. Whittier's poem about a slave mother and her children at the gallows stair was based on a statement that Brown had written from jail. That statement became the basis for a myth about a slave child receiving a kiss from Brown. In 1884, Thomas Hovenden used that story to create this painting which became the iconic image of Brown's martyrdom. It was widely widely reproduced as a print. We have one of those up in this exhibition upstairs. For Brown's admirers, this image provided a much-needed antidote to the unlikable persona of John Brown the terrorist, a persona that he had earned in both Kansas and Virginia. Brown's standing in American memory rose considerably in 1928 when Stephen Vincent Benet published a Pulitzer Prize-winning poem, "John Brown's Body." Benet asks a question that still resonates today: Was John Brown a hero or a criminal? How do we decide whether his goal trumped his criminality? Benet writes, "No one can say that the trial was not fair. The trial was fair." painfully fair by every rule of law and that it was made not the slightest difference. The law is our yardstick and it measures well or well enough when there are yards to measure. Measure a wave with it, measure a fire. You can weigh John Brown's body well enough but how and in what balance weigh John Brown? The popularity of Binet's poem revived interest in Brown among painters. So in 1937-39, to 39, John Stuart Curry was invited to return to his native Kansas to paint a dozen murals for the Topeka Capitol. This image is the best of them, titled Tragic Prelude, meaning Tragic Prelude to the Civil War. Curry was forced to abandon this project when groups complained that he chose to illustrate Kansans at their worst. He modeled his dynamic figure of John Brown on Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses, whom Brown admired as someone chosen, like himself, to enact God's will. The modern prophet John Brown is, is posed as if being crucified. He holds the word of God in one bloodied hand, the Bible, and in the other, a Beecher's Bible, a rifle purchased with funds raised by the Reverend Henry Ward Beecher of New York. Free state and pro slavery forces carry American and Confederate flags. The land is ravaged by a prairie fire and a tornado, and pioneers flee farther west to avoid the carnage. To to Curry, John Brown was a fanatic, whom many Kansas historians blamed for causing the bloodshed and desolation that had ravaged their state. The motion picture studio, Warner Brothers, used the story of John Brown in a pseudo-Western Santa Fe Trail, starring Earl Flynn and Olivia de de Havilland, shown here at the top. Flynn played Jeb Stewart. On the right, midway down, is Ronald Reagan as George Custer. At the bottom left is Raymond Raymond Massey as John Brown. This became one of the top-grossing films of 1940. The movie had little to do with the Santa Fe Trail, <laughs> other than it was an escape or route, route out of uh, Kansas. The inaccuracies are many. Jeb Stewart and George Custer were not classmates at West Point and best of friends. Jeb, Jefferson Davis did not order Robert E. Lee to Harpers Ferry, and Jeb Stewart did not lead a cavalry charge against a fort at Harpers Ferry held by John Brown. However, the film did outline to a national audience the mission of Brown to end slavery, though it recorded the prevailing white view in 1940 that Brown was a troublemaker. So vicious is the characterization that Brown's granddaughter brought a suit for slander that won her an out-of-court settlement of $8,000. It was in the next year, 1941, that Jacob Lawrence painted his 22 scenes of the legend of John Brown. This one is entitled... After John Brown's capture, he was put on trial for his life at, at Charlestown, Virginia. A year later, Horace Pippin, another black artist, painted scenes from the life of John Brown, including this one. Pippin conveys the quiet solemnity of the moment as Brown goes to his hanging. In actuality, no spectators were present, but the scene seems somehow very real. One can imagine the sound of the horse's hooves and wagon wheels. We're led by the artist to consider the significance of Brown's sacrifice. This photograph, titled The Story of Harper's Ferry, was taken in 1904. If you're at the back and can't see it, he's holding up a book that clearly has has a picture of John Brown on the front of it. Throughout the 20th century, the apologists for John Brown have have churned out images and biographies, while his detractors have have not been very active. It hadn't mattered. Uh, Opinions haven't changed much. Americans seem to remain as divided over John Brown today as they did in 1859. Mention of the name John Brown still brings powerful feelings to the surface. His violent attack against slavery inspires debate about a number of issues, but Liberation, justice, vigilantism, terrorism? Do individuals have the right to carry out violent acts based on conscience, conscience just because a cause is just? Does society have the right to protect itself by any means? If John Brown believed that he would succeed in what he saw as his God-directed assault on slavery, does the precedent of his attempt Give anyone so inspired the freedom to pursue whatever course seems appropriate? If he believed he would fail, but in the process would make a powerful statement? Is John Brown so different from the bombers of today from Oklahoma City to Iraq who attempt to galvanize public opinion and in that way bring about political and social change? Do fanatical individuals ever have the right to put the lives of others at risk? Which John Brown should we remember? the crusader for abolition, or the bloodthirsty terrorist? Can we separate them? Is it possible to list Brown among the great pantheon of American heroes, or do we still recoil from the image of men being hacked to pieces in Kansas, or his attack on an American military installation an action that can be described by no other term than treason? And so we have the problem of interpreting John Brown. As Stephen Vincent Binet said, how do we weigh John Brown? So on that note, let me open this subject to you for questions about the facts and discussion. And we have microphones that will be carried out to you so that everyone can hear, hear the question. Was any legal action taken after the Kansas affair? Um, nothing happened. Uh, John Brown was, was able to um, escape, and, and, and of course legal action should have been taken, but I can add the perspective that this murder was one incident of many. In fact, the other side committed more atrocities of this sort than, than, than the anti-slavery group that... John Brown-led, committed. Um, And so uh, Kansas was a pretty wild place. It was a territory, and there wasn't much justice and and law and order, and so nothing no, no criminal action was taken. The question was, what were the charges brought against John Brown at the actual trial? There were three of them. He was charged with murder, with inciting slaves to revolt, and with, with treason, and uh, William Green was very clever in his, in his he's a, he a brilliant lawyer, and he's very clever in his, his appeal to the Supreme Court of Virginia, in which he said, um, well, you charged him for murder, but you didn't specify exactly who you murdered, and you charged him with inciting slaves to revolt, but you didn't mention any specific slaves that he incited to revolt, and you charge him with treason, and according to the law of Virginia you can 't commit treason unless you 're a citizen of Virginia, and he wasn 't a citizen of Virginia. So the court agreed with that and threw that one out uh, and then he also said you, and, you, and you, you charged him as committing these crimes with with the men who, who, who he led, but you tried him by himself, which you shouldn 't have done, and then you also tried him on all three of these counts together, and treason is not pardonable by the governor. And so you, shouldn't, you, should have tr- tr- you should have tried him separately for treason so that he could have appealed to the governor on the other two points. But everyone, I think, knew what the result of the appeal was going to be before it happened. But it's fascinating. It's interesting what it tells us about William Green and what he came up with. Green, by the way, thought Brown was, was a lunatic and a criminal and, and, and despised him. But he thought his responsibility as a lawyer was to give the best effort that he could. Did John Brown have a band of men at the time of the murder of Eliza Pires Lovejoy by anti-slavery? Uh, um, the references to the murder of Eliza Lovejoy, who was a, um, an anti-slavery activist, um, and I believe that was before Brown was in Kansas. Most of the men that Brown took with him to Virginia, he had, he had, he had rounded up in Kansas, and they followed him there from Kansas. Um, he had been leading some groups of, of, of free black men in, um, in New York State at about the time of the Lovejoy incident, so it's possible that he might have had some followers there.
0: With the um, thousands of slaves that were working in Jefferson County s- surrounding Harper's Ferry, I don't understand, um, was it a failure in his communication that he couldn't rally right. them behind him, or was it fear on their part?
1: Um, it, w- it was both of those things. That's a very good question. You know Why none of them came forward? Actually, two of them came forward. One was killed, one was put in prison, and he died soon afterwards. So uh, you technically you'd say he did free two people for a few hours. Um, the, the communication was, was always a problem. There was no way for, for the word to be sent out in advance that this was going to happen, because there would be some slaves who would not anything to do with it and had strong enough ties with the, the people who owned them that they weren't going to let a, a, um, an insurrection take place. In fact, Abraham Lincoln later said that in one of his speeches, that, you know, Southerners, you don't have anything to worry about. There's nothing like this could ever happen again, one thing, because John Brown was one of a kind. there will never be anybody like him. And also because there are too many faithful slaves who just aren't going to let it happen. Um, and, um, and, of course, they, they were... Uh, were frightened. It was a total surprise to them when people came in the middle of the night and, um, and, and attempted to round them up. It was also very strange that this raid took place on a Sunday night when that was one of the nights of the week when the slaves were allowed freedom and to wander off to other plantations and visit so that many of the slaves weren't even there on the plantation at the time this happened. Um, also, the uh, county was not... Uh, well, populated with slaves. This, this was not, there weren't, weren't that many there. Uh, but, he, but he chose this Jefferson County and Harpers Ferry because of the federal ar- arsenal there.
0: Was there any effort on behalf of the U.S. government to usurp Virginia's effort to try uh, Brown? Were they successful? Did they really want to just stay away from it?
1: Um, at the urging of, of Southern congressmen, there was a, a, a Senate committee that investigated uh, the episode after the fact. Uh, they pretty much stayed away from it before, and, and um, Virginia and, and Governor Wise rushed Brown to to his execution within six weeks. Um, afterwards, the uh, Senate committee in, in investigated um, or attempted to investigate uh, the incident uh, but they never really got very far because they they called some members of the Se- Secret Six to testify, and some of them just didn't come. Um, and then they issued uh, a statement to the effect that, um, well, we we don't really have any power; we don't have control over private individuals, There's nothing we can do about it anyway. So the federal government did basically did nothing. Yes, uh, did the Virginia Military Institute send its uh, Corps of Cadets to the it execution, did. and did uh, Edmund Ruffin disguise himself as a cadet? He disguised himself as a member of one of the militias, I think, rather. I think he could have passed for an older militiaman easier than a young cadet. <laughs> uh, but the, um, the the Corps was there, uh, Stonewall Jackson was there, uh, this was, was overkill by Henry Wise. He had militia units. Uh, Robert E. Lee was called back with some of the uh, federal forces from, um, from Washington to, to protect the, um, the, the, the area. Uh, that John Brown had great fear that there would be, because there are a number of letters apparently uh, written to Governor Wise, Governor Wise had great fear that there would be an attempt to spring Brown from prison. And so he overdid it in terms of having uh, literally a, f- a thousand or more soldiers in the, in the area, those included the, the VMI cadets. You talked about the, the white slave owners being worried about uh, slave insurrection back then, and of course they didn't have instant news like we have today. Talk a little bit about communication and what what how did they get the news to even be worried, or was it the fact that they had a lot more slaves on each plantation than owners, so that just from that standpoint they were worried? Well, this, this, the, the communication was suddenly very good at this point. The telegraph was there, and the, and the word went out very quickly after the uh, raid was initiated. And as I mentioned, the the two, two newspapers in particular, Harper's Weekly and Frank Leslie's Illustrated Magazine, did extensive coverage, as I showed you a number of the images from them, and they were uh, accompanied with with long articles uh, about the um, about the events. So people heard heard about it in, in that way, and the newspapers were were full of um, all the local newspapers were full of information about it also. And the reason this was such a touchy subject was because there had been Slave revolts elsewhere, the most famous one one in Haiti, in which, which the hundreds thousands of people were were killed and, and there were often references made to the rebellion in Haiti, and that this was going to be this could have been another incident, incident of that and then of course, there was nat turner 's uh, revolt in Virginia in the 1830s um, a lot of similarities between Nat Turner and John Brown, they both considered themselves chosen by God to do what they did, and so on. People remember that, Gabriel Prosser's um, attempt. These things were on people's minds, and, um, and, and, and John Brown brought that fear to the surface. Well, I thank you very much.